If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. So yeah, it's just wonderful to be here with with Tessa. Uh, We met quite a few years ago now. We were judging the BBC Short Story Prize uh, with Joe Dunthorne, who who was very young then. I mean, he's such an old pro now that when we said, oh, come to the event and to the dinner afterwards, he said uh, he'd skip the event and just come to the dinner. So that just shows how he's matured. And uh, it was a great time, really, because actually, you know, there are these prize meetings where the judges are at loggerheads and somebody is over my dead bodying everyone else. And on this occasion, we were all in such total agreement that at the first meeting, we'd agreed not only the long list, but the short list and pretty much uh, the winner, too. In spite of that, I was of the opinion that Tessa shouldn't have been a judge for one very simple reason, that it was so obvious after that first meeting that if she'd been a candidate rather than a judge, then she'd have been a shoo-in. And that was ages ago. I think I'm right in saying at that point you'd only published one collection of short stories, Sunstroke or maybe two. Yes, probably. I can't remember. can't remember what year that was. I mean, time flies. So it was probably something like 1896, Yeah, I think it was. We we got a handsome cab from the meeting. The winner was Henry James, (laughs) yeah, for The Beast in (laughs) the Jungle. I don't even rate his short stories that much. (laughs) So um, anyway, so that was wonderful. And of course, since then, I mean, Tessa has just gone from strength to strength with, I mean, there's been, I think, five novels since then. And then we're here in a a quite appropriate in my beginning is my end type way to celebrate the the latest sort of batch of short stories. So let's start with that, Tessa, a, a collection of short stories. Is it at a certain point, do you sort of just stop the sausage machine, as it were, and say, this is what I've got up to this point? Or does a given collection of short stories, is it ready for you because you feel it has a thematic or aesthetic unity as opposed to just being, let's say, a, a, a bulletin of what you've done up to this Yeah, I wish it date. was the second thing because that <laughs> sounds rather magnificent and aesthetically rich. But I'm afraid it's the first. I just, when I've written about 10 or 12 new stories, it feels about time to put them in a new collection. I don't put absolutely everything in. Mm. But um, I shared a couple of little occasional pieces, perhaps. But, uh, yeah, that's it. it. There must be themes, but they're just my themes. They're just the things I've been thinking about for the past five or six years, and therefore I've been writing about them. Yeah. OK, well, do you know, this actually this leads on to another question, because in preparation for this, I was rereading some of the stories in Sunstroke, And I was struck, by the way, oh, my God. I mean, it's just, it's there, fully formed, the Hadley uh, world and style. And I 
was very keen to ask you if that was your sense as well, or do you feel mm. uh, in what ways? I mean, you must. You you both are and are not. I'm guessing the same mm. writer you were mm. when Sunstroke came out. So yeah, just perhaps there's you could a sort elaborate. of delay factor, I think. So I Sunstroke. There's a, quite a lot of mothers with young children, young women, mm. sort of pushing against marriage and. That was then. <laughs> and this one ends, appropriately enough, with, with a, a rather sad middle-aged lady living with her elderly mother. So I feel as if, thing, you know, that's not the whole truth. And I always want to write about children and teenagers and middle-aged people. But somewhere, the subject matter has altered. It has altered. Mm. A- about the style, I don't know. I don't really reread the old stuff very much. Sometimes it seems that some of those stories seem a little bit laboured. The sunstroke ones? Maybe. It's lovely that you don't think they are, so perhaps I'm... Not not laboured is not... Just they they sometimes take longer to tell the Mm. the thing that now maybe I would jump across. That's all. That's all. But it's... I mean, mean, to combine my first two questions, so rather brilliantly the new collection ends with a coda, a story yeah. called Coda, yeah. which in a way brings us up to date. I, it's set during, it's not yeah. just a mum and daughter, it's mum and daughter yeah. during the lockdown. Locked together during lockdown, yes. Yeah. And I did feel I was writing it kind of when lockdown was still around and I, was, I wasn't living with my mother and I'm not quite that embittered, middle-aged, strange <laughs> woman but I was down in the country with my aunt and my mother and we were seeing lots of them. And I felt I was writing that story from inside a cupboard, actually. It felt very, mm-hmm. very constrained. And yet, and yet funny. I, I mean, yeah. I, I hoped it was funny. The, the material, lockdown, all of it seemed to have great comic potential to me. Well, it's, we don't want to give too much away, but it's comic in that great way. One of the, one of the great comic moments of it is actually when the mum collapses. Yeah. That, that sort of ridiculous yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. sort of and, episode. And the daughter thinks she's dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There is, there's lots of comedy to be had yeah. from old ladies lying on the floor. There really is, actually. Alas. So that's, uh, yeah, that, that's a story, as it were, torn from the screaming headlines of, 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 the, of the moment, isn't it? Yeah, 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 which is maybe not like me, but I think I did feel I should write something about lock. I don't know why. Mm. I just felt, oh, this has been very strange. I haven't liked it, of course, who liked it? And there must be something to tell, and that little tight lockdown family unit seem mm. the right story to tell yes, about yeah. that collective experience. Well, the other thing about that story is, of course, like all great writers, I mean, you know, you're, uh, you're so fantastic on people's faces, both the way that people are concealing what they're thinking and the way that the very act of concealment is a form of revelation. And then, as it were, a layer is added to that with the fact that they're wearing masks. Yeah, I, mean, that's I know. So... That's, that was amazing. I sort of love there's a scene in the story where this slightly obsessive but not unsympathetic young woman who is reading Madame Bovary the while 
comes against the, up against the woman she has a crush on in the supermarket car park in <laughs> the winter's night with their masks on. It does, it's, there's an element of dark carnival or something about uh, yes. that. And she hears the bottles clinking in the other woman's bag and thinks that her own bottles will soon be clinking in her bag. And there's a sort of affinity between them. Yeah, it's so, it's so brilliantly done. But also the way you describe it there, uh, Tessa, it's so fantastic because your, your world is often so entirely uninteresting to me. I mean, that word, you couldn't have made it sound more dismal. What was it? Supermarket, car park, all this yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll come on to say more about that. But actually, this is a... So I was asking you how the... You know, when you decide a, a book of short story ends mm. and it turns out it's just you know, what you've got up to that time. Let's move on to a a slightly more difficult question, which is how do you know when a short story has ended? Because that's a famously, as it were, Mm. open-ended thing. Yeah, it is the hardest bit about the short story is launching it and bringing it down in the right place. And I kind of feel I need to know that I've got that bringing it down in the right place before I start. That doesn't mean it will be exactly as I envisage it in advance, but I have to feel at least secure enough that I know where something's going. And recently, I did struggle and struggle with a short story where I really liked the material. I liked my people. It was a sister and brother in sort of middle age and then her old lover, who's his best friend. And I hadn't, I I felt confident that I would come across where I was going to put this story down, what it it would reveal. Because in a way that you you have to be giving your reader a a gift, a present, you have to be handing them a a newspaper wrapped parcel of stuff and they're going to like pass the parcel, peel off the layers and there has to be something in the middle of it. And I couldn't find the something. I just couldn't. I had to throw the story away. It's locked in a not really locked because I wouldn't know technologically how to do that, but it's in a file that's sort of called do not open this file. (laughs) Do not try to write an ending again after the five that I tried and rejected. So you've got to... That's one of the things you need to know about a short story much more than you do about a novel. Because as a reader, when you're reading a short story, I think, you tell me if you think I'm right, you, you hold the story suspend it, waiting, waiting, and you don't know what it is until it ends. That's impossible with a novel. You couldn't possibly do that. You couldn't wait that long. There's got to be all sorts of stuff staked out en route with a novel. But I think with a story, you don't know what it is until you've read the ending. And there's some equivalence in, in, in setting out to write one, the same thing. Let me ask you a related question, a bonus question, as it were. So who are the great short story who are the who are the great enders of short stories mm-hmm. who who do who do the who do the great endings who does the great who, yeah. do the great who does a good ending uh kind of all the good ones really I see, because of your definition of what a short story is yeah. yeah i mean obviously there's an era when it's Saki and sherlock holmes and they they tie the thing up in a lovely knot mm. and turn it on its head and, and really satisfy you with who did it. That, that went out with K. 
Catherine Mansfield and Lawrence in a way. They, they, now you have this, what looks like a trailing off, but isn't a trailing mm. off. In the trailing off, in the who knows what could happen, there has, you have to deliver, if you can, something that is enough for the reader to think, I've, take, I've got that, I've taken it, you've given it to me and I've got it whole in my hand. So Elizabeth Bowen, John Updike, I love oh, his short I was stories. Come back to him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's very he's brilliant at the endings. Yeah. Um, Mavis Gallant, love yeah. I love her uh-huh. endings. Alice Monroe, different, she's alone. There's something strange about her super superb stories they're long they're longer they're almost like proto novels so so but her endings are still very important i'd love to ask a, a related question to that so you're there you are you're when you're sitting down writing one of these things that ends mm. up in this book are you sitting down writing a thing of a length to be determined or are you Mm. sitting down to write a short story. And these are all of pretty consistently... They're all about 25 yeah. pages. So is That, that seems I mean, to be the length of my thought, seems to be that. And then sometimes I'm writing, rarely actually, because I don't really like it, but sometimes I've had a commission and it's got a, a shorter length yeah. usually. And, and, and I can sort of fit to that. Um, so isn't it a bit odd? I mean, so you've written novels, which are 300. And I always, I like this kind of thing. So, yeah, you've written novels. Which I don't know how long they are. 300 pages, let's say. You've written these stories, 30 pages. Isn't it a bit odd that there isn't something of 80 pages? Yeah, it is funny, isn't it? Yes. Um, well, and there, there could be a novella, of course. Yeah. Whoever that is. I mean, but... What, I mean, yeah, I, it is odd. I know exactly what you mean. You mean, why does meaning either take that rounded, small form or mm. that long? Um, I don't really, I don't know whether I have an answer to that, but... And it's, because I, 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 I'll say this because I suspect I might not be alone in feeling it, that I often find the short story... F- uh, experience as a reader rather frustrating mm-hmm. because, and it's mm. actually, it's God, I don't want to be rude. It's true of your stories to the extent that, I mean, they're not like Russian novels where you spend 200 pages no. trying to work out who's who. But for the first three or four yeah. pages, quite often I'm unsure yeah. who's where who. we are and who's okay. who. Yeah, so of, course, of by, course. By page five, I've just about got it yeah. into my thick head. And then by page 10, it's all over. <laughs> page <laughs> 20 so it's um yeah. i mean mm. so it's this uh what have there been uh what determines then if is it not the case that sometimes you'll be sitting down to write something a situation which you think is going to be a short story and then it turns into a novel or have those novels always been begun with the intention of there being novels yeah they have they feel like a, diff- a subject with a different heft to me. Although once I did with Clever Girl, in fact, I, that I began the first chapter was a freestanding short story. And then I thought, uh-huh. I really like this character. I reckon she could do that and then that and then that. 
Um, yeah. And it did become a novel, but that's unusual. Henry James used to do this. He was always trying to write a short story and then would discover it had turned into one of the late novels. Um, <laughs> or he'd have an idea for a novel, mm. which uh, you then um, acted upon in one of the That is stories. true. That was not... That was not my idea. That was a friend who collected together... Uh, Henry James' notebooks are full of ideas for short stories mm. or possibly for novels that he never wrote, in fact. So a friend of mine brought a, put a book together which was to commission people to take one of those unused Henry James mm. ideas and run with it. I don't know how well that worked, but it was... It was fun to do. Yeah. Yeah. I found myself sounding a bit Jamesian as I wrote it. Well, there are the phrases in yeah, there that yeah, I yeah. probably wouldn't under other circumstances have used. Just a little touch of 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 something mannered, which was uh, fun. And as many of you will know, your PhD thesis, which then became a book, was on Henry James, wasn't it? Yeah. That was at the point when I thought I might never be any good at writing fiction and I thought I'd better have a fallback career because um, I will be miserable anyway if I can't write but at least I'll be a bit less miserable if I can teach writing and talk about other people's lovely books that I love well this is so odd Tessa this uh state you described because it seems to me you're somebody who's uh whose intelligence whose everything is so perfectly fitted to to to, to fiction <laughs> I mean, so I, uh, tell us a bit more about this stage of uh, uh, of um, uncertainty or how, how you, how you became... 20 years of writing and failing, really. Yeah, I was 20. I was 20. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think partly I was incredibly impressionable. That's the kind of person I am or the kind of... So I, I was trying to write other people's books and failing. I was trying to write Nadine Gordimer books, then some Brecht books, then some Yasha Kamal books, Turkish writer who was very fashionable in the 90s. And I was, trying to, I was faking it because I sort of didn't know what story I could have to tell. Um, obviously, I failed in writing all those books. There, is, there was some turgid novel about the South Wales minor strikes. I was living in Cardiff at the time, which tried to be a sort of... Nadine Gordimer comes to South Wales, but I'm glad to say that's in, uh, rotted in landfill somewhere. <laughs> um, so that's what I think it was, and I have no, I don't know what it was that somewhere in my 40s enabled me to, mm. I hope, you know, sort of come home and let myself into my own house. And some, some of it was thinking... Well, there's just this small thing that I know. I know what I think about that. I know what I have to say about that. I have all sorts of things to say about that little daily domestic mm. thing. It's funny, this, because really the truth is that every... Oh, I'm glad we've had this sort of preliminary thing, because, and I'm glad you've mentioned Clever Girl, because in a sense all my questions were going to be variations of a, a very simple one, which is this... How do you do it? Because it, see, it always seems to me that Clever Girl, particularly the first 80 pages of that, I f always feel with that book that if I could subject it to some sort of analysis, the mystery of how to write fiction 
would be revealed. Because, I mean, those of you who've read Clever Girl, from about the third page, it's not just that you've, uh, you know, put, uh, you know, it's not just that we can see what people are wearing. It's that complete immersive trance that you, you get into. It's really the most extraordinary thing. And it's extraordinary because unlike, say, Joyce or something with all that stuff going on, uh, there don't seem to be any tricks in it. But it's the, to me, it's just the ultimate mystery, the ultimate trick of fiction, how to achieve that. So, how'd you do it then? <laughs> it, I don't feel that secure often in, and I can, and I can still miss it. I mean, that, there is just, you can hit a sweet spot and you do sort of know it. You think, you, just what I just boringly said, you think, I know what I think about this. I know how to tell this. I know what it is with, these, with the material. It's, it is about finding the truthful material, I think. The, the right story to tell. And, and, then, and then that clicks into place. But just as I just described that short story I tried to write recently, and I, I failed it, or it failed me. We, we, were, we were no good. I couldn't find my way out of it, into it. Or, well, maybe into it, but not out of it. So is it the case that in a a weird way, I'm aware of how ludicrous this is going to sound, that you were like sort of Conrad in a way, that you had to amass this experience. In Conrad's case, it was being a master mariner. Yeah, luckily I didn't have to become a master mariner because that might have been badly. Yeah, and then he retired. In your case, though, it was this uh, accumulation of what one might call it domestic life and then having the ability or the confidence to say oh yeah this is actually as interesting as being in the south seas yeah. or i mean i've i've read be. lots of other writers saying something like that i think as byatt says something about women right coming into being novelists in their 40s i think that is it alice munro who somebody talking about writing the, the shame about one's own tiny material at home and the sense that writing is out there somewhere else, something addressing something important. Um, and that, well, lots, lots of Nadine Gordimer, actually, writing about how she grew up thinking novels had to have snow and Christmas and Europe in them. But she was in South Africa and one day she realised that you could describe mind dumps outside Johannesburg. Uh There is a kind of shame about the thing that is just ordinary to you and you feel as if the magnificent business of writing belongs somewhere else more important. And then one day, for some reason, you you just turn home. You turn for home and just do it. And you do snow so well. There's that lovely bit. It's on page 111. Uh, and it's snowing, you look out of the window and you see the, somebody sees the row of dustbins, each with its lid of snow. Hmm. I mean, that's writing. God, I just love that. And anyway, well, I could go through. I mean, let's, I know what I wanted to do because this is all part of my kind of thing of, you know, of another version of this how do you do it uh, question. Um, and so it's this really. I feel, I mean, have you... The sort of three ways of this, really. I mean, 
Have you just got this incredible mem? Do you have a great memory? No, for my brother thinks I do because I tell stories about our childhood that he doesn't remember. But of course, partly I'm making it up. But also, I have those seventeen memories that he doesn't have. Uh, it, uh, I don't have. Yeah. A, I don't have an especially good memory. No, I know uh, I don't. My, my mother does. She's much better than me. Though she's also a fictionalizer in her uh, anecdotes and her, her narratives. So there's that. Okay, so that was. So this is a three-part question. Okay. So there's the memory thing. Then, I mean, as I came here tonight uh, on the way here, I noticed absolutely nothing. What about you? Did you notice anything on the way here? And if you did, did you make a note of it? I know exactly what you mean. When I used, I can remember reading D. H. Lawrence and just thinking, well, I'll never be able to be a writer because I didn't know that that plant looked like that. I think that's the feeling one has with writing that you like, and I love it that you have with my stories. It's amazing. But the, the point is, you will, it, Jeff. Because you do write wonderfully, and of course you notice exactly what you needed to notice, I... and you put it down there. Of course you do, and and it's it's the brilliant illusion of writing fiction making in particular, but also that thing you do, that you by putting three things on the page, you create no. an entire hinterland. Yeah, I mean, I say yeah, not not yeah, not yes. That's what I do, but no, yes, that's what you do. So the third thing, which you've sort of preemptively answered, then is this. So it all has to happen at the desk. For it happens、you. at the desk. It isn't something that you have in advance of the、mm. desk. No, absolutely. And when I'm, one of the things I think hardest in writing. Is to actually describe people's physical、yeah. presence because I. But then I love to have that because it matters to me. People, what people look like and their aura matters. So I. It's really hard to do. Obviously, it's not like painting, which is marvelous at conveying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and you can read the whole of Anna Karenina and think that her hair is. I don't even know. Is her, is she blonde or dark?、Mm. Is she blonde? I, I can't remember. No, I can't remember、uh, either. But, so, in other words, it's a really odd thing that writing does because what、yeah. you try and do is put down three markers, which will somehow help the reader to to make a presence. It's not quite an exact physiognomy. It's not like a photograph, and it's not like a painting, but to make a presence. Yeah. Well, but you say it's three things, well, but you do about. Well, the thing is that you you do this thing. There's the, just the inventorying of things, so the accumulation of details. But then, of course, you do that. This is the. This is why I think Clever Girl is contain is the Rosetta Stone of fiction. You combine that with this great narrative propulsion. And also, then there's the psychological dimension, and of course, like any cross-examining lawyer, I have some evidence. So here we are, page one nine six. This is just a thing here. This is one of these sort of little moments that so often erupt in your books, where there nothing much is going on. Then suddenly, Mia says,、uh, "I'm unhappy." Mia complained, waggling a cigarette between lips thick with plum colour. Clinging it, clicking at her lighter listlessly. Okay, so that's an amazing. But、moment. you can see that. Yeah, I can, can see, see it. it. Yeah, I、that. can see it. I don't know how you do it though. I don't know how you've. 
okay, and here's then the next page, which this is even more remarkable. Uh, so they have a bit more, <laughs> they have this ridiculous conversation. And then it's this. Mia brightened up, prodding out her cigarette in one of the leftover smoked salmon tartlets. I mean, that is... Uh, I mean, just... can I actually tell you where... where I was, in, when I was about 18 or 19, I lived with my aunt and uncle for a while, being their au pair girl or something. And I remember cooking with my aunt steak for some posh visitors they had. And one of them didn't eat the steak and put his cigarette out in this piece of fillet steak. So that oh did go into my oh memory yeah. banks. Oh. But I, I had a smoked salmon tartlet instead. Just something appallingly prodigal and, and insulting to food and cooks, isn't yes. there, in that act? Are you a, you're a, are you a good... I mean, you're, you write well about... You're an amazing writer about cooking. Well, you're, yeah. the thing is, you're... I've, like I've made good. a list here of, uh, really. is there, I mean, you seem to, I mean, oh, God, let me just, um, let me just get to this Do you know, this, this is interesting, Jeff, you know that little story you've just read that bit from? My American publisher made me change the title, and I still regret it slightly. Do you know what it was called? It was called Pork Cooked with Prunes in Vouvray, and I loved that title. And I think she thought it was going to make me sound too upper class or something. That was what oh, she sort of hinted to me. I know. Because it's probably um, quite a vulgar dish. I don't know. It was something I cooked when I was this au pair thing for my aunt. It was part of my repertoire. Uh, I would never cook anything as fancy as that now. So the food is great, but it's also the... I mean, it's this classic... Oh, I think it's George Steiner says of Balzac. He says, depend upon it. When Balzac describes a hat, that's because somebody's about to put it on his head. So it's <laughs> that thing of always action. But then... You do everything. I mean, here, so this world of, I mean, so there's the visual thing, but this world, word of, this world of smells. So here we are on page 139. She goes out into the street, blah, 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 as if there were only absences cut, cutting out, cut out against the street's thick air, so pungent with garlic, meat, wine, car exhaust, an undertow of rot from the river. I mean, just the sensual... Uh, I think loathing. everybody knows that stuff. Not everybody. No, I think half the world knows that stuff. And the only thing writers do that's different from a, you know, moderately alert, alive person is put it into <laughs> words. It's that bit when you're sitting at the desk getting it into words that is the expert thing, not absolutely not the knowing it. And in a way, if I try and remember the transition from failing to being able to write something that felt a bit true, it, it was opening some gate that had access to, what, to what, one, what we all already know. I mean, otherwise, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't even recognise it. You wouldn't think, oh, yes, that's true. So you do know it. Yeah, I mean... So and it's just opening the gate, or the gate is, you know, opening the, the, the door into all that stuff. And you... It, it has something to do. I mean, writing, I'm sh I, interesting whether you recognise this, is a sort of funny passage backwards and forwards between something that is incredibly intellectually controlling, got to be clever, as clever as you can be, and then something that's completely dreamlike that is to do with fantasy and dream. Do you recognise that? Well, I was going to say, hence that why I said that weird trance-like quality of, of clever girl. 
you know, and that's really what, what, what uh, you know, mm. I mean, it's, um, well, it's, yeah, yeah, I mean, you're, and it's what makes reading any, anyone, uh, you know, a, a pleasure, yeah. but it's, uh, I mean, it's just, there's a few other sort of aspects of what you're up to that but I it, want. It is the joy of realism, which, yeah. when I was first writing, yeah. was perhaps more critique than it is now. I, I like it that I think a bit like we now, like Lucian Freud's, you know, portraits that are representing something mm-hmm. real in fiction too we are we're more in love with realism than we were 20 years ago and for me it's just like the biggest tr- wonderful illusionism once writing discovered it that you could put some black marks on a page and through it a reader could be deluded into thinking they were there. It's it's a miracle, and it's it marvelous. Is. It is marvelous. But you're you're saying this as though there is this thing called writing software, which is of, a, accessible to no. everybody. But the but, thing is, Tessa, you're, well, you're so. But the thing is, you do it better than you really do do it better than anyone. So, and you do it. You can do it. You're so great on, well, houses, gardens. And then we move inside. You're even great. I mean, I met, you know, uh, was it uh, Ezra Pound who said The Spoils of Poynton was a book about furniture? I mean, you're such a, you're so great on, here's I'm, a, I'm somehow feeling so tempted to list all the things I don't do very oh, yeah, well, but I'm not going well, to do okay. that. That would be bad. No, this is, I mean, here's, here's a great bit, everyone. This is, I can't remember which story this is in. Uh, a sagging leather sofa Cushions cracked and pale with wear spilled its horsehair innards in front of the fire. I mean, that is just, that has basically got everything that somebody, I'm in the market for. Somebody in a review wrote that I was more preoccupied with interior decor than with human beings. But that's, so just to say. But that is bollocks what they're saying because um, you also, there's also this thing which is so important actually in that story that we were, you were talking about with uh, the COVID story, CODA, you talk at one point about how in these moments of crisis you say something like, when we get right down at the bottom of life and the thing is you know, you, you deal with huge topics of, uh, well, you know, all the big topics, love, betrayal, illness, aging, young love. It's just, it's in, yeah, this is what I want to say. Here are these, you know, they're domestic. It's, it's domestic life. It's sort of British life. You know, they occasionally go on a holiday somewhere, but you're certainly, you're emphatically not going up the Congo in the Roi de Belge or whatever Conrad did. But it's all there in such a, it's the abundance of your world that uh, that yeah. staggers me, and oh. it's a world that I, in a sense, couldn't be less interested in. Yeah. I love that. I love that. <laughs> oh, but I, I'm sorry. That's just my. That's yes. not. I'm not taking a call. That was my alarm to say um, we've got to shut up, keep quiet soon. But I, this is to, yeah. Sorry, uh, that interrupted no, your no, train just, of thought, Tessa. Yeah. Well. You're lovely, you're embarrassing me. That's so nice that the, the story through there. It's incredible because I can so remember 20 years ago the feeling that I would never be able to do that. So, and I'm, you know, so, wow. Well, that alarm was to say it's going to be time for questions from you. But actually, I want to just uh, 
uh, mention one other thing. There's in the story where uh, one of the people is reading Madame Bovary, uh, you qu- somebody quotes this very, uh, Lucy Caldwell quotes this, uh, you saying, the fer- you talk about Flaubert, the ferocious, pure aim of the words right at the heart of reality. So I like the right at the heart of reality. There's nothing ferocious about your writing. It's sharp. It's, well, do you think there's ferocity there? Not, not of a Flaubertian kind, no. What's non-Flaubertian fer- ferocity, I think, <laughs> if I may be so bold? Well, he's, he's that whole French thing of a kind of devastating, brilliant, exhilarating deep cynicism about life, about everything. Everybody's no good. That's why Madame Bovary is such an extraordinary novel, because she is so silly. Uh, yeah. And yet, and yet we, we are hanging on her every movement, mm. her every remark. Um, so I, I don't think I have that. It's very masculine. And I don't have that in me. And in, I love it. And in Free Love, I mean, Phyllis is silly too. Yeah, that's um, true. Let me, I'll just ask one more question. It seems to me that there's this, uh, now that I've read a real lot of your stuff, it seems to me that there's one particular thing that we keep coming back to, which is this kind of importation or eruption of that uh, American countercultural hippie stuff into, into British life. And, I mean, of course, that's entirely what free love is about. But we keep getting different versions of it. I mean, free love is about that. And it co- crops up again and again in the stories. Either the staid world that is mm. um, uh, um, uh, interrupted by that, or increasingly the people who were born mm-hmm. into that world, whose parents were all getting stoned mm. and drunk and misbehaving, mm. And then the effect that that has mm. on them. Story of my era, story of my life. Well, please yeah. expand on that a bit, uh, uh, Tessa. Well, you you just you have you want to tell the story of your time. You want to record it in some sense. I do think I actually I feel as if when I'm reading past writers like the 19th century, reading George Eliot or reading Jane Austen or Dickens. Part of the joy is if they are capturing for you that real otherness of then. So although it's an odd thing because you're immersed in your own time, you, you do have, you, you have an appetite. I have an appetite for catching, catching what it's like to be alive now. And if you live for long enough, you, it's not just now. It's actually 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago. And all the change, the sociology and the anthropology that comes with that stretch and that eruption of counterculture in the 60s, which is defining, really. I, mean, I was just a child, but it was defining in my parental ambience. They, they weren't crazy, my parents, but they were glamorous and they thought they were going to be utterly different to anything that had come before. They thought they were going to be free. Mm-hmm. And then we are the children of that to some extent. They were um, only glamorous in a very small way, by the way, I ought to say. My dad was a school teacher and my mum's a dressmaker. But none, everybody mm-hmm. could have a bite of this 
free yeah. in the 1960s. So in a way, it's, yes, it's, na- it's perhaps not surprising you can do that. But uh, what uh, there are young people here, so it would be great because we're praising Tessa so much. Feel free to disagree. But it seems to my aging self that you're great at the current crop of young people too, which I guess you have access to. Obviously, I deliberately had children in order to <laughs> study them. <laughs> Such devotion to this uh, <laughs> To this trade, yeah. But no, it's, uh, I mean, I really feel I understand so much more about young people now by weirdly reading old Tessa Hadley. <laughs> you may be deluded in that, Jeff. Um, anyway, I'm sorry that I've been, I've slightly over, overrun in terms of asking questions, but I mean, I, I just love asking Tessa stuff. But now, please, I mean, do, uh, it's now, uh, over to you for questions and I think we wait till you've got a microphone. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed hearing your stories read through the New Yorker fiction app Um, and I'm curious about what that relationship is like, a repeated relationship, writing for a particular author, um, sorry, editor uh, and developing that. I wonder what that's like as as a writer. I mean, to begin with, it was like a miracle. (laughs) I couldn't, it was... In fact, I have a sort of story where when I was writing and failing, one agent was vaguely interested enough to meet me, though she didn't want to take any of my stuff. And she said, well, just keep writing short stories and put them around here and there. And the only, I knew nothing. And the only, I knew that all the writers I admired had been the New Yorker. And I said, what like shall I send them to New York, to the New Yorker? And I saw her look at her assistant and go, (laughs) you know, like... So that did add a special extra layer of delight when Deborah Treisman took my first story almost, well, sort of as the first novel came out, she took the first chapter, which was a bit like Clever Girl. It was a free, it worked as a freestanding story as well as being part of a novel that was written episodically. I, I, I seem to use, I mean, I, it, it's so lovely. And but it makes me anxious, so I'm always anxious that she will turn a story down, and she does. And um, yeah, and I, tr- I trust. I, I very. I once or twice she's turned something down, and I've thought, oh no, I think you just didn't get that. Mm-hmm. Americans don't like you writing about America, actually, oh. which it, which is probably there's probably an inverse thing where we. We would read some, like, like Woody Allen filming London, and he had that student in a flat that you'd have to be a Saudi millionaire. I can't, I can't remember which <laughs> film it was. But, you know, um, just getting something wrong. So probably yeah. I sometimes get things wrong. Do but they, it's lovely. Are things ever too English or British for them? No, no, because I think that sort of... I mean, it's astonishing to me that Americans want to read stuff about anything quite so British. But <laughs> but actually, I feel that's probably part of the taste. I mean, I think New Yorker subscribers are a bit Europhile. So that's probably what it is. In terms of the editing, I mean, it is notoriously meticulous and exhaustive. And the, when it was first happening, when it was new, the first few stories, I would just feel, oh, God, they don't really like me at all. You know, they want to change so much. That's awful. And, and 
then I gradually just realized that that's like the best honor you can really have to your sentences is for someone to go through them and say, are you sure about that? And you've used that word there as well. And all of that sort of fine tooth comb work is, it becomes a pleasure actually. It really does become a pleasure as you relax to it. I like, I like doing that. Tessa, earlier you um, mentioned feeling that the early stories in Sunstroke uh, maybe take a bit longer in the telling yeah. than the, the more recent stories. I don't necessarily think that's true. Whenever I read one of your stories in the magazine, I'm immediately there with the characters. But to the extent that is true, is that because of that relationship over time with the publication or is it just that you've been always holding yourself to a higher standard uh, over time? What do you think? I think what one gains, but not infallibly is confidence in yourself and you can just make more careless leaps. You have fun doing them and you don't doubt it. So it's more a a kind of confidence that comes with having done it lots of times before, I guess. I don't, I don't really want to betray my, my, my earlier stories. I, to be honest, I don't very often look at them. That it's strange looking at them. It's sort of charged and, anxiety making a bit like a bit like looking at an old diary would be which is a funny thing because I don't think I write very it's it's not close autobiography it isn't my own life and yet it and yet it is it is distorted and hidden but but underneath it is and so it is like being intensely plunged into a past that's gone so actually yeah it's quite odd Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question about Coda. Um, it sort of bucks the trend slightly in terms of your writing style, because normally you inhabit a kind of omniscient third-person narrator, mm. and Coda's written in the first person, yeah. which actually quite shocked me, because I don't think I've read anything else of yours in the first person. Um, and I just wondered what kind of challenges that presents, or yeah. joys, in fact, or and just yeah. how it feels to shift gear like that. I mean, I love writing in an omniscient third person because it seems to me just the thing Jeff and I were talking about, about you can be in a scene in my imagination as I sit there at the desk and I, I can milk it from every direction. I can, I can know things that the characters don't know about themselves or only know tacitly, implicitly about themselves. So it seems to me a, a really rich perspective. And it has my voice in it in some complicated way or a, or, a, or a voice, a narrative voice that is sort of something like mine. So when you're taking on a first person, you've got to be sure that that first person is very rich, very, very strong for you, like um, Stella in Clever Girl. I just liked being... In... Do you know what I had to do in Clever Girl? When I'd written quite a lot of it and I read it over, I realised that she was, she'd become mannered and I had to take her down a lot. It's very it's tempting with the first person to, to overdo it a bit, to, to mm-hmm. over-enrich it. And so I took her voice down a bit. She was a bit sarky, a bit full of her perspective on things. So I had to... Because if you're living with someone for a whole novel, yeah. that's, you've got to not wear out your reader's patience. I don't know why Coda was first person I, I but it needed to be and I loved that first line I can't I, now I'm going to forget forget we exactly what it was something like to a, read a bit Tessa, didn't we, we you did, could read the beginning of coda perhaps I could shall I shall we just a shall little bit that? sorry okay. that was my fault we should have um 
Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I, and then see if I can then imagine why <laughs> I had chosen to read it in the first person. I went upstairs in my mother's house, telling her I was going to the bathroom. There was a downstairs toilet, but it had a raised seat and a frame with armrests so that she could easily manoeuvre herself on and off after her hip replacement, and I was squeamish about it. I couldn't help feeling irrationally that if I used it, I'd be contaminated with something, with suffering, with old age. And anyway, I didn't really need to use the bathroom. I went into the one upstairs that was free of any apparatus, closed the door, sat on the toilet seat lid, then pressed the flush so that she could hear it. The truth was that every so often I just needed to be alone for a few minutes, not making any effort or being filled up with anyone else's idea of what I was. Don't get me wrong. First of all, my mother wasn't really suffering. She was getting along pretty well for 92. She had magical powers, I sometimes thought, of resilience and brightness. And I was glad to be with her during that time when we were all locked down month after month because of the coronavirus. I couldn't have been happy living away from her, worrying about how she was managing by herself, knowing she must be lonely. She was naturally sociable and longed for company, any company, even mine. <laughs> we had both lost our men, hers to death three years earlier, her third husband, Dickie, not my father, who was her first and had died long before, and mine to divorce at about the same time. We grieved for them, but it was also restful without them, without the performance and the competition that they brought. My mother was old-fashioned in that way, a man's woman. She used to flirt even with my husband. I'll have to call her Margot. I can't just go on calling her my mother, as if that were all she was. Oh, great. Um, so I can hear in that why I need... It's because she would be so invisible, wouldn't she, if it wasn't her voice. Yeah. It would be hard yes, to yeah. get to, to, to do that on her behalf. Uh, we've got time for maybe one more question. So I was interested when you were mentioning Alice Munro as an influence because it's very like rare quality that I think like you, Munro, maybe like Elizabeth Strout have in your short stories. It's like basically no one else kind of achieves because like you think of it as such an unambitious form but where you can kind of like scale over so much like time in someone's life and then also like build this sense into it. There's like, there's kind of like vertiginous you know the irrevocability of like everything they've done mm. so you get this like real sense of like time as a very constricting substance i can't really articulate it properly but you get kind of what i mean and um so it's surprising you saying that you like you're kind of improving your stories you're like making them up as you go along and then you reach the end you're like oh okay that's what it was um so i'm wondering how much that like sense of like building up accumulating time and that kind of like profound way is an intentional thing or like how much of a priority it is for you like Jeff was saying like how do you do it <laughs> I, I didn't say I was improving them because I don't think I do I think I'm I, I am not planning not on horrible little post-it notes or something but you know with a sense of the shape and where it's going to come down but I mean everybody who writes short stories learns so much from Alice Munro 
about time, about using time very boldly in the story, because I think the first instinct of the story, the short story form, is, is to be one little piece, one little dense piece. But she sort of taught us, not entirely alone, but she taught us that you can, you can end one paragraph and then have a little white space on the page and then say, 20 years later, they went back to the same place. And I just learned that from her. I, that liberate, that's so liberating. I, it's actually, isn't it, a, it's a paradox that it's easier to do that in a short story, obviously, than in a novel. Because if you did that, you'd quickly run out of novel if you jump forward 20 years too often. So funnily enough, it's the opposite to what you would think. The short story liberates a kind of a, a, a big, bold relationship with time passing. Um, I guess we should stop now. Well, there was, you had your yes, hand up. Hand this will raised, be the last question. So it's, uh, yeah. Thank you. Um, Tessie, you read so beautifully, as we just heard there, but also on the New Yorker podcast. Is it the writer's voice? Um, yeah. yeah. Writers reading their own short stories. And I just wondered how much, if at all, reading aloud is part of your writing process, what part that plays, if any. Not at all. <laughs> Fair Not enough. At all. I, no, possibly that comes from living in a household where if my sons had found, heard me upstairs ranting to myself, they'd, they, they were wicked enough ironists about my writing. Uh. When I was writing those failed novels, there was one, which did have a terrible title, I agree, but it was called Crazy Salad, which is a quotation from W.B. Yeats, I think. Oh. It's something that, that something women eat a crazy salad with their meat. And, but, you know, they wove it, my sons wove it into their daily conversation, like, Mum, what are we having for supper tonight? Is it going to be crazy salad yeah. again? So I hate to think what they'd have done. I, I, no, I, I think I can just hear it inside my head. But I've always, I've always loved reading out loud. The only thing I can't do is accents. I'm not a mimic. Mm. So, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But, but I, I've always liked that. And I used to love it when I was teaching literature, reading other writers out loud and feeling that, that you can create the spell that's so enchanting. And so I, good, I'm glad you, you like me reading it. Yeah. But no, it's because what you write for is not the voice it's the I, and that's mm. curious and strange. It's the I, and when you're failing and making a mess of a paragraph, you have to make your poor brain and I look at it and again and again and take that sentence out and look at it again and look at it again, and it's, it's mysterious. It's the I that you write for. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, Tessa. Uh, Jeff, Tessa, you. well, no. And thank you, Jeff. Well, yeah. it's honestly yeah. my pleasure. So thank you. Oh, it's real happy. Yeah, thank you. And all thank for you, audience. Okay. And Just Tessa thanks. will uh, answer more questions because she's so nice and sign books. And uh, yeah, that. Thank, thank you so yeah. much for coming. Okay. Good. Great, Tessa. I knew that would be good. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.